Hello and welcome to the State of Freight podcast brought to you by FTR. Today we're doing a Q&A episode that is extending off of the Key Issues in Transportation webinar from July 9th. This was a complimentary webinar and the full replay is now open to the public at www.ftrintel.com forward slash key issues. In the Key Issues in Transportation webinar, we covered some of the most consequential issues affecting freight and how various outcomes could affect shippers, carriers, brokers, and really the entire transportation market. We also covered many of the topics and data that is covered in our weekly market update podcasts. So we have decided to take a week off from our regular podcast, and we encourage you to take that time to go watch the full webinar replay. Again, that is available at www.ftrintel.com forward slash key issues. At the end of the webinar, we answered as many questions from our clients as we could. But in today's podcast, we are bringing the FTR experts back together to address the questions that we couldn't get to within the webinar time slot. Today, we'll be hearing from FTR chairman and CEO and a great source of knowledge for many aspects of freight, Eric Starks. We also have two of the FTR experts that are always working to bring their expertise and experience to our partners and clients, Todd Tranowski and Avery Weiss. Todd is our Vice President of Rail and Intermodal, and Avery is our Vice President of Trucking. And with that, I'm going to let FTR's Chief Intelligence Officer, Jonathan Starks, take over and guide us through the questions that you want to know. Well, thank you. And this morning, we had a fantastic discussion looking at so many of the key elements that are surrounding transportation. But we obviously ran out of time uh, with so many questions that were coming in. So I want to thank Eric and Todd and Avery for joining me again to kind of go through some of these important questions that are still out there and uh, trying to get some answers out into the public. Avery, we're just going to go ahead and kick off with you. We've seen some some strong indications uh, in the truck spot market and the FDR truck uh, freight recovery index that shows trucking doing pretty good during June and, and at the beginning of July. And we've also seen some of that in the intermodal side as well. Do you view this as just a normal, hot uh, environment for trucking as we get into the summer? Or do you see some other aspect happening that's going to switch the marketplace as we kind of get out of the traditional peak season here in June and watch things slow down as we get into the into the dog days? Well, sure. If I, I guess if I really knew the answer to that question, I'd be doing something else. Uh, but uh, the, the, I think the truth of the matter is there, there certainly is some seasonality built in despite the fact that we're so disrupted, you know, and I think it's probably uh, most pronounced in the refrigerated sector um, due to produce. But uh, so, so some of it clearly, I think, is seasonal. Uh, on the other hand, I also think that um, it's possible that we're seeing uh, trucking starting to uh, benefit a little bit from the disruption in, in several ways, one of, one of which is that we now have this emerging demand in automotive and other sectors uh, for parts and components to, to build stuff again. Um, but we already had inventory for it. So, so a lot of that movement, you know, by truck, you know, is, you know, from, uh, from DCs and warehouses to production facilities, it's stuff that's already there. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's, it's could be part of what we're seeing. Uh, and uh, the other, the other big part is that, you know, the spot market thrives on disruption. So, 
you know, to some degree, we will see a uh, a little bit stronger market, I think, um, as until we get a more balanced, uh, you know, situation between where the freight market is and, and, and where capacity is. Um, and that doesn't mean that, you know, overall utilization is, is strong, far from it. We think, we do think it's bottomed out, but there is a lot of question of whether the capacity is in the right place. And that tends to shift volumes from the route guide environment into, into the spot market. So the spot market, you know, very well could stay, uh, you know, hot for, for weeks to come. Uh, it might actually come down a little if, if, you know, we're starting to see um, some of the, uh, you know, inventories get depleted and, and not necessarily be replaced. We, we have not become accustomed to any kind of supply side disruption like that. It's usually demand that falls, but, you know, the, the swings have been so abrupt in production that, that that's certainly a possibility as well. But, you know, we've got a lot of, uh, a lot of disruption that, that I think is going to keep the, the market if not continuing to to grow, which would be a tall order, uh, certainly uh, uh, certainly healthy for for uh, you know a few months to come probably. So Todd, as you look at that from the intermodal perspective, we saw some real strength early on on the trailer side, uh, but we didn't see it in the, in the broader container segment. But we've seen that shift a little bit lately. So how are you viewing that from the intermodal perspective? Well, thank you, John. I mean, we're really looking at that as sort of surplus to, to, to the truck market as folks, you know, try to look for additional capacity using intermodal as an outlet, because it's certainly not coming from imports. Import volume through the ports, no matter what uh, port region you're looking at, whether it's West Coast, whether it's Western Canada, whether it's the Gulf, whether it's the East Coast, you know, it's not import volumes that are powering that. And so we look at the intermodal surge that we've seen as being you know, folks looking for capacity that they can't find in the spot truck market and using uh, using intermodal as a way to uh, to sort of be a relief valve, be a bleed valve for that. And so we'll have to see if that lasts long enough to get to higher import volumes, to get to, you know, sustained levels of increase. But we'll have to see if we can get there, if that's going to last long enough or it's going to be more of a blip. You know, for the moment, I think it's it's a blip and once trucking – sort of normalizes, I think we'll be fine. Yeah, let me, this is Eric. Let me throw, let me throw a couple comments in off of this. I, I think one of the things that we were looking at on the trucking side is we were expecting a, a rebound as we came through the summer. That's, that was a given. Uh, what we didn't expect is in the spot market for it to rebound as fast as it did. And to come back to quote unquote normal. I mean, if you look at what's happened with the rates, we look at number of loads, all of these things are, things have really normalized in a lot of ways. And in fact, we've seen more loads being posted than, than uh, we might traditionally at this point in time uh, anyways. Uh, but, but broadly speaking, and this kind of plays into the, to the intermodal arena is the fundamental economic activity underlying that is not there enough to support continued strength. At, that, at those types of levels on an ongoing basis as we move through the summer. So we need to see economic activity picking up and having, having a base there that will keep us at these potentially higher levels. And that's what I'm a little bit worried about is, can we, can we get the demand up high enough to sustain that type of activity? And I, I'm just not quite sure we're there yet. 
All right, Todd, we're going to keep you uh, on the docket here for a minute. We've seen a dramatic uptick in the automotive market moving items on the rail as they ramp up production. So is there ability to see continued growth there? Uh, how do you see sort of that, that weekly data on the, uh, on, the, on the transportation equipment side beginning to level off or, or still show growth over the next month or so? Yeah, no, I mean, I think we're definitely starting to see some leveling off in automotive, and I would expect that to continue. You know, we, we saw a dramatic ramp up as plants reopened. Uh, that has obviously slowed down as those plants have gotten to more normal, uh, more normal production rates. We don't expect them to get all the way back to where they were before the pandemic. You know, auto sales have not gotten all the way back to where they were before the pandemic. You know, we were running 16, 17 million annual sales. Now we're down, you know, 12 and 13 million. So, you know, there's a clear step down there. So we're not going to get all the way back uh, in automotive. We wouldn't expect to get all the way back. Uh, we're probably starting to level off right about where we will, uh, where we will end up, probably right about that 23, 24,000 carload a week number. You know, and there's probably not a whole lot of upward momentum on that, given, uh, given where we are um, in terms of, you know, in terms of demand, in terms of the overall quality of the U.S. consumer. So, Eric, can I ask you a question about uh, automotive sales? You know, they obviously dropped down to a pretty low level during the quarantine. But how do we see that coming back? Do you, is it able to come back to a fairly normal level, what we had, you know, pre-pandemic? Or is it likely to be reduced? Or is there pent-up demand that might create a surge of activity? How do we see that right now? Yes, 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 and yes. I, you know, it's, it's a mixed bag here. And that's the thing that's been so, so crazy. We got a lot of people getting uh, money uh, that, uh, that the government sent out to everybody and they felt good about things. They said, you know what, I need to spend it. And so we did see people go out buying some, some automobiles. And we also saw a handful of deals there. Now, the auto companies are going to be trying to figure out how do they continue some uh, momentum that they saw uh, as they moved through this of getting people excited about uh, buying. That doesn't necessarily mean that they did completely buy. Uh, but we've been hearing that they are not wanting to give the incentives, but I think they're going to have to continue to give incentives to keep people out there and, and to buy. If we see another round of uh, the government uh, being able to send out some some additional uh, cash to people that could help and that uh, that'll be interesting but one of the broader things though is some of it comes down to production side now we we saw the production offline for an extended period period of time we're trying to get supply chains back into a more normalized range we're trying to see if we can get mexico fully up and then the, the u.s supply chain moving so i think there's going to be some pains all the way through. I just don't see us getting back to those peak levels uh, this year, uh, but that I still see some, some further, further increases. There is so much uncertainty right now of, are we going to see the consumer buy? And uh, that's, it's, un, it's unclear. I mean, we've definitely seen the savings rate going up. So some people have money, but I think that there's becoming a disconnect between who has cash and who doesn't. And, you know, those who have cash right now are, are happy just to sit on it for a little period of time. So I just don't know how this one's going to play out. All right. Now, Todd, 
one item on the rail side that has been fairly steady is grain. Uh, but we've also seen some pretty strong Canadian grain movements. Are there issues that are that are potentially shifting uh, where grain move is occurring right now, or does it look to just be uh, a near-term impact that that'll get back to a more normal level? Grain's one of those things, John. It's a great question. Grain is a sector where people still need to eat, even pandemic or not. People still need to eat, and so it's one of those sectors that has been around the five-year average continually as we've gone through the pandemic. It hasn't seen the sharp decline that we've seen in other segments. And we've got, you know, we've gotten into an issue in terms of U.S. and Canada. People have to remember, go back a year ago, we had a very weak planting season in the U.S., had a very weak harvest. Canada had a bumper harvest. And so coming into the year, Canada had a lot more stockpile of grain to move than in the U.S., and so it's not unsurprising that we would see, until we get around to the next harvest, that we would see Canada take advantage of uh, that additional loadings performance, that additional inventory and harvest that they have to be able to try and uh, to move additional grain while the U.S. waits for that next harvest. We haven't had, you know, that full harvest. 2020's planting conditions were a lot better than 2019. So we would expect to see 2020's harvest numbers, 2020 grain available to move, be a lot higher than last year. And so it's not unsurprising this year that it's not, it's not unsurprising this year that you would expect to see uh, Canada outperform the U.S., but that will probably go back to more normal a ratio between the two countries once you get into 2021 and you have a, a traditional harvest under your belt. All right. Thank you, Todd. Avery, there's basically one key question that's overriding everything else on the truck side and that's the issue of capacity uh and so you know you went into some pretty good detail on on ppp uh the ppp loans and, and some of the effect on the truckload arena do you believe that that is creating an overcapacity situation in the trucking market uh or, or do you see it as as behaving fairly normally at the moment well, it has definitely disrupted things in a sense. And, and I think here I would make a distinction between uh, active capacity and, a, and available capacity. And I'll explain that in a second. I mean, we, we clearly do not have far too much capacity or else I don't think we'd be seeing the strength in the spot market that we're seeing. But, you know, I do think that we overall still are, are a little soft um, in capacity, in other words, we just slightly bit over capacity um, in in available capacity, but I mean in active capacity. But, but what I mean by available capacity is, you know, there's a there's obviously a difference between having a driver in the seat operating and then having a driver furloughed. And I think what what the situation right now is is that there are a lot of furloughed drivers that, that essentially are cooling their heels. Uh, you know, they, they can come back, uh, but there's just, you know, not enough freight for them right now, um, especially given that you have this disruption, not only with PPP, but also the unemployment benefits that are, that are out there. Because in a lot of cases, it would be hard for some of these carriers to bring back drivers and have them make as much money that, we, that they were making, um, you know, that they're making while they're unemployed. So rather than have 
you know, rather than to fight that battle, I think a lot of them are trying to make do through that period uh, until it's over. Um, it, regarding the, the PPP program, I, I think the, the issue there is that, yes, that money has certainly kept businesses afloat that otherwise would have gone out of business. Um, but, you know, the jury is still out on that and how long that is going to last. That money is not going to last forever. Uh, there is some talk of, uh, you know, some program uh, whereby, you know, existing recipients will get, you know, another tranche of, of loans. Uh, they've already kind of made things a little squishy by changing the terms. So the original terms is that you basically kind of had to keep your your workforce in place in order to qualify for forgiveness. And now they've stretched that out really through the end of the year, at least, and who knows what they might ultimately do. So that in a lot of cases, you know, you can have continued furloughs uh, of drivers uh, and, and so the status of, of where we are in capacity gets a little fuzzy. Um, so it would be cleaner, I think, for everybody had we had a little bit more clarity on how long, you know, PPP would last, uh, how long the accountability there would last, uh, how long the unemployment program is going to last, uh, and then a whole host of other things, including, you know, some of the drug testing requirements that have been loosened up. Um, so, um I think all of this has uh, fueled the spot market to some degree because I think it is is sort of complicating trucking companies' management decision over you know when and when to bring uh, workers back. I think you know the original program that we saw um, that it, that would have been answered because they would have had to have brought those drivers back in order to get their loans forgiven. Uh, now they have a lot more time on that. So. Um, I think that it's a long way to say that, you know, we have less clarity, I think, in this than possible. But I do think that the money, if not added to by Congress, that, that money is going to start running short soon. And I think we are going to have some bankruptcies in the months to come that, that is definitely going to have uh, at least a, 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 an immediate impact on capacity. Now, keep in mind that a truck trucking company bankruptcy doesn't necessarily mean you lose the capacity. Uh, the, you know, that equipment, those drivers can go elsewhere, and they often do. And I think we've seen that actually over the last couple of years. Um, but there, there is a lag in that, and there is a disruption that, that I think you know, would fuel the, the spot market and would you know, send rates up higher in the near term. So I would, uh, this is Eric, I, I, would, I would completely agree with what every, uh, everything that Avery, Avery said. The one thing that I'm going to highlight is that this decline that we saw was so unprecedented that pretty much everybody, and it was not just trucking, it was all industries, everybody was sidelined. So the ability for us to have a workforce that's already in place, and, and Avery indicated this already, but what I want to do is highlight that we could see a substantial recovery if things pick up sooner rather than later, and you have the drivers available. But we, ha we have seen where you had this amount of capacity sitting there in the sense of idle trucks not doing anything. Uh, but we've never seen anything drop this fast. And so if this continues to linger for too long, then those drivers eventually disappear. They are no longer available to the fleets and to, to, the, um, to the carriers to then put them back into uh, into things. So, uh, in, at least into the, into the trucks. And I, I think 
that's where I get worried is the longer this lasts and extends, uh, the harder it will be for a true recovery to kind of be, be seen. Yeah. And, you know, I think there's a couple of important points here. One, one is, you know, Congress, it's looking like Congress may, you know, reauthorize some level of federal unemployment, you know, augmentation or supplement to state unemployment. Um, we, we've saw some uh, coverage today out of out of the Wall Street Journal and in other outlets about um, Mnuchin being being open to that, but we we don't expect them to be as generous necessarily. Uh, and I think that is going to make things very different. Right now, we have frozen. As I said earlier, there's a difference between available and active, and I think we have we have a pretty big pool of available capacity and. Um, as Eric said, the longer that goes by, you know, if we continue the $600 a week unemployment, that available capacity might stay for quite a while. If that gets cut back, uh, then drivers start to look, well, okay, this isn't, I'm not making as much now unemployed as I used to make when I did, you know, when I did have a job. So maybe I want to find a job. And, you know, as I said in the in webinar, you know, one place they can look is, is the, is the e-commerce in you know, parcel local delivery sector, um, because while those wages typically are not as much, they give drivers a lot more flexibility. And it is fundamentally the same job. It's, you know, driving different equipment, but, you know, if you're driving a big rig, uh, you know, driving a Sprinter van is not going to be overly taxing for you. Uh, So uh, I agree with Eric. I, I think there is a, you know, there is a time frame now where, this capacity can come back as quickly as it's needed, but the longer this takes, because we've never had anything this sudden. I mean, you look at the Great Recession, you know, the peak in payroll employment and trucking was a year before we actually, we actually formally were in the recession. You know, the recession formally started December of 07. We peaked in trucking employment in January of 07. And there was a lot of construction and manufacturing that took place during that time. We didn't know that we were about to collapse. And a lot of those drivers were getting fewer and fewer miles, taking home less money. They went off, did other things. That isn't happening yet. Although it may, you know, we may find that it is already happening with local delivery, but if it isn't already happening, it will happen. Yep. All right. Thank you, Avery. And thank you, Eric. It's a, Capacity is just going to be an ongoing discussion as we continue to move through this. Todd, I'm going to shift to you. I got just a handful of uh, probably fairly brief questions. Uh, We'll just do a little bit of rapid fire. When we look at the intermodal segment, uh, we we tend to think of it as as very consumer oriented, but do we have any data that really helps us understand how much of that is truly geared towards the consumer versus how much is going into the industrial arena? We don't have hard data on that, John, but a good way to think about it is the larger boxes, the 40s and 53s are going to be those consumer goods. And that, that's the majority, the vast majority of what moves intermodally. Now, the 20-foot uh, containers are going to be more of that, that industrial product, more of that heavy, you know, industrial manufacturing equipment uh, type of good. And the reason I can say that is because, you know, that's the reason that moves in a 20-foot box is because that's the kind of good that's going to weigh out before it cubes out. You know, it's a big, heavy piece of you know, industrial product, you know, whereas consumer goods are generally fairly lightweight. And so they're going to cube out before they weigh out. They can use all the available extra space because they don't have 
the same way out issue that you do uh, if you're doing a bigger, heavier industrial good where you're not gaining anything from being any bigger than 20 feet. All right. And uh, as you look at the, the carload business, you know, we've indicated highlighted for you know a considerable amount of time that volumes have gone down dramatically there. How far back do we have to look to sort of see a, a prior comparison in which volumes were at this level? Well, on an absolute level of volume, John, in a non-holiday week, it hasn't happened at least since 2007. Now, it's happened a couple of times in the Christmas and New Year's holiday weeks over the last, you know, 13, 14 years. Now, the Christmas and New Year's holiday weeks are the slowest weeks of the year. And every year you see a seasonal drop off the cliff in carload volume as folks close for the holiday, take time off, take downtime. The last time we saw it was really back, you know, just this past year. You know, it was Christmas, the Christmas week of 2019. You know, the other times we've seen it, we've seen it Christmas and New Year's weeks of 2018, uh, 2015, 2012, and 2009. So it's happened a couple of times, but it's always happened in those holiday weeks where you would expect significantly lower volumes. It hasn't happened uh, in a non-holiday week. All right. Thank you. We, we touched base on rail car utilization several times in the webinar. When was the last time that we actually saw a true peak, a high level of rail car utilization? And when was that? What was the, you know, what was the actual level that we were running at? Oh, sure, John. Thanks. And it really depends on what you define as a peak. If you look at the last cycle, the peak of the last cycle was in the second quarter of 2018. We were at 81%, right about the historical average. If you look at the last, you know, true peak of demand, the last time we were you know, at a truly high level, we were back about 100% capacity utilization back in the fourth quarter of 2014. So it's ha it has certainly been a while since we've been at those really strong, really high peak levels. But that also indicates that within the span of about five years or so, it has been able to cut utilization in half. Yes. Which is just ex substantial amount of movement in something that typically doesn't move that fast. Yeah, no, absolutely. The, the rail industry has, has changed a lot in that time. You've seen a lot of folks, you know, with a low interest rate environment, folks get into the rail equipment markets as a way to have a hard asset, as a place to earn a return that's not uh, sort of the traditional uh, homes for money uh, that folks have looked for. You've also had, you know, some car types be invested in that uh, are were not needed in the numbers in which they were built. You know, certainly small cube covered hoppers for drilling sand. There's a lot of those uh, available that are uh, not needed that need to be repurposed. There's also a lot of open top hoppers and those that go directly to the coal market. Obviously coal uh, has seen a dramatic shift in its fortunes uh, over that time. You know, things have really dramatically changed. There's a lot of equipment that folks thought they were going to use uh, really to the full lifespan of the full 40 years of the asset in a hauling Western coal and a lot of that equipment that's now 25, 30 years old, you know, it, if scrap prices go up, it is a, a real candidate for scrap. And that would certainly help that utilization number. But until we, until we get there, we really, you know, it's not going to move noticeably until you, you sort of cycle those, those events. All right. Thank you, Todd. Eric, we've spent 
you know, years and, and basically the lifetime of FTR trying to understand truck volumes. And so I'm going to ask you sort of for the, uh, the, the boilerplate viewpoint of how do we come up with understanding what truck volumes are and then what are some of the key aspects we use to then understand how do we forecast demand in that segment? Awesome. 30 years and 30 seconds, I can do that. So the, the, the one thing I, I do want to say is we don't distinguish at the front end of when we forecast, is it going to be truck demand, is it going to be rail demand? It is just demand. And then we can look at what's happening within the different commodity types and who traditionally moves it. So we have a, a distinct focus on the goods production sector. Uh, within that, we are looking at initially GDP and we're saying, what's happening G within GDP? What's, what's the breakdown between services? What's happening within the consumer? What's going on with uh, durables and non-durables? What, you know, what's the outlook for business uh, investment in equipment, for structures, for the housing market, and then for the goods sectors on the imports and exports? So, we then take that, we look at what's happening at a detailed level within the industrial production. And the, the Federal Reserve uh, puts together great data and we can forecast out that data. And then it allows us to then start segmenting down by commodity types. And at that point in time, we can look at what is the, what is the outlook for each of the commodity types. We look at 209 distinct commodity groups and we forecast those out. At that point in time, then we, we know, we say, well, we know what rail is, we know what water pipeline and air is, subtract it out, that gives us truck. So that's the process that we go through on a, on a monthly basis, on a daily basis to, under, to understand that. But industrial production is a significant portion of the amount of freight that, that truck moves. We always think about the sexy retail side, the consumer side, that's not the bulk of the freight that's out there. So that's a big that's a big uh, that's a big issue in what we what we look at and what drives our forecast. All right, thank you, Eric. Avery, we didn't touch base too much into a whole lot of uh, sectors on the trucking side in the webinar itself, but refrigerated was certainly a big topic that got focused on early in the quarantine as we had this this big huge surge in restocking demand. What have we seen on refrigerated lately and, and what's some of the basics of our outlook for that segment? Sure. Yeah. I mean, we, we, get, we got the levels in March um, because of the panic buying uh, in, the, in the early stages that you know, we'd never seen before and quite possibly will never see again in the spot market. The, the, the disruption in so many different ways on both demand and supply was just so extreme and you had this, uh, this, this, instantaneous shift between institutional food service to grocery. Um, it's just, you know, the, the, the proverbial perfect storm. So since then, um, you know, all the sectors uh, bottomed out around the middle of April, but it, it's interesting because refrigerated has probably the most surprising in a, in a way trajectory since then. It spent the least time at bottom uh, whereas uh, both uh, flatbed, uh, especially flatbed, and, and then dry van were, were, you know, stuck at bottom for quite a while. Uh, refrigerated really didn't stay there very long, and it, it started to come back pretty quickly. But it hit this peak, you know, based on our uh, truck recovery index, the, the refrigerated component of that. It hit this peak in early May, and then just didn't go anywhere. 
And in fact, it actually backtracked uh, some, um, you know, during the, the back half of May. And, and frankly, it, it is now recovered, you know, well to, to the point where it is, you know, load volumes uh, on, on an adjusted basis, uh, the, you know, the, the index volumes are above where they were before the restocking phase. But we only saw that strength at the very end of, of June, which is when we normally would see a seasonal bump. So we, we obviously had that seasonal bump in addition to, you know, to some other factors, uh, which is probably that we're still seeing this, um, you know, this kind of, uh, uh, you know, imbalance going back and forth. As restaurants reopened, you know, a lot of them had frozen goods that were still fine. You know, they were only needing to replace fresh goods. And, and by the time you get to the end of June, you know, a lot of those restaurants now are, are starting to need everything else. So, so we, we've had that, you know, very odd trajectory. Now, as we, you know, as we look ahead, you know, as we normally do, we see refrigerated tending to be, you know, less volatile than other sectors because food, you know, inherently is, is less volatile. So when we look at, for example, the, the, the loadings outlook for this year, um, you know, every, every segment is negative. Uh, refrigerated is the least negative segment. Um, of, of all. And then, you know, conversely next year, you know, you know, we're expecting almost all the segments to, to rebound, uh, obviously off a pretty low base. And, you know, other than I think tank, uh, we expect refrigerated to have the, the least growth. But again, you know, we don't expect those big swings in refrigerated. And then, you know, when we look at the rate environment, uh, it's kind of similar. I mean, you know, again, we don't see, uh, you know, not surprisingly, any segment be positive in 2020 on rates versus 2019. But refrigerated is a lot better. The outlook for refrigerated is a lot better than the other sectors. Uh, and the, you know, outlook for uh, 2021 is actually uh, strong there as well. Um, you know, it's, you know, rates and in, in volumes do not obviously move always in lockstep. Uh, there's a lot of other issues, including capacity. Um, so, um, I, I guess overall, I would say that's, you know, the, the general outlook for refrigerated is that it, it's generally is going to hold up as being more stable, um, than the others and probably is less subject to further revisions as we go on, because again, people eat, um, they are not necessarily going to buy, uh, you know, consumer goods in, in the, in the levels that they always have. All right. Thank you, Avery. As the trucking environment, you know, potentially shifts, have we seen a big shift in what the length of haul for trucking is due to changes in all the local, you know, e-commerce delivery? Uh, or is there other changes or, or not changes that are occurring uh, that basically offset what's going on around e-commerce? Sure. Well, you know, it's actually more of a complicated question than you might think, because I think the obvious answer is, well, things are shortening because people are getting stuff delivered at home by, uh, you know, by, by parcel and local delivery. And we've certainly seen uh, data both in employment and in, you know, retail sales that shows non-store retail being huge. 
So, so the premise of there obviously being a lot of local e-commerce is not just, you know, obvious based on what we went through, particularly in March and April, but, you know, it's showing up in the data. But I think as that applies to how it affects length of haul, it's more complicated. Um, to some extent, yes, because, you know, we are uh, seeing more deliveries, um, you know, between DCs, uh, which uh, allow, you know, which is tending to shorten that, that length of haul. But also we're, we're seeing, um, you know, a lot of the e-commerce being fulfilled not through direct, you know, at home delivery, but through uh, pickups by, uh, um, you know, by the end user, by the purchaser uh, at curb, you know, curbside at, at, you know, the major big box retailers and, and frankly, grocery stores and, and all over the place, you know, you see that, you see that increasing uh, during, during April and, and even well into May. So uh, the other, and the other issue of that is when we look at length of haul for truck, um, you know, we, we tend to look at medium, you know, medium and heavy duty. That's where the data is. Uh, you know, a lot of that, a lot of those shorter haul, the shortest hauls in there are actually being done by very small pieces of equipment, you know, where we, we just don't have that kind of data. Uh, and, uh, and so um, it's, I, I guess the short answer, it's, it's a little complicated. It's a little, um, it's a little hard to read all of those tea leaves in in the midst of, of of everything that was happening in the last three months. Eric, do you have any thoughts on that? Man, I could agree with you 100%. I can attest to the curbside pickup. That is the only reason why I have put gas in my tank over the last two months or four months. I take that back. I think I've only filled it up uh, twice. So um, <laughs> that's just to go pick up curbside delivery. And so, yeah, it, there, there's a sea change happening, but it's, I agree with your fundamentals. The fundamentals have not materially changed. It just feels like it, but uh, yeah. All right. Thank you. Todd, we're going to finish up with you. Uh, we've, seen recently with the Dakota Access Pipeline um, and, and even you know over a more extended period of time in which the rail side is impacted by regulations not just um, or, or regulations are legal not just supply and demand and so with the changes in, in or the potential changes with the Dakota Access Pipeline is that going to affect the rail car environment utilization chances for increased crew by whale what do you see happening well let's well, let's back up for a second and get everybody at a at a level base here the dakota access pipeline is a crude oil pipeline that hauls crude out of the midwest uh down to consumption markets okay and there is a a lawsuit over whether its environmental permit is valid or not it has to cross a river it needs an army corps permit to do that now when the pipeline was first commissioned there was a lot of permitting and a lot of angst about this particular permit that has now uh, on appeal been uh, that has now been uh, you know rescinded and so on appeal and what they're going through is it's un it's unknown whether uh, folks are going to be able to, to continue to ship on that pipeline there was an injunction uh, that the the pipeline owners asked for to be able to keep operating the pipeline uh, while the appeal was ongoing. The appeal uh, was denied by a judge, but we've heard anecdotally that uh, 
that the pipeline is still taking commit <laughs> commitments for shifters uh, in, in what would be down period. And so we're trying to uh, figure out what that means, whether the pipeline will be allowed to, you know, to keep operating and what that means. Obviously, if it shouldn't for any length of time, people will need to find alternatives to move that product to market. Now, tank cars are among the best utilized uh, equipment out there, even as we've seen utilization really face a lot of threats and a lot of issues out there. Um, overall utilization, obviously we showed that graph in the webinar, down below 50%. Tank cars are fairly well utilized. You know, they're, they're um, right around the, the average, I don't have the number off the top of my head, but right around the historic long run average number. And so you could potentially see an issue if the market thinks that this is going to be a long-term issue, that they're not going to be able uh, to get this pipeline back up in a timely fashion. Then the market could uh, look for alternatives and could make commitments. But of course, remember, rail cars are long-lived assets. You don't lease them for short terms generally. You know, you generally want to lease them for multiple years. And so an outage for a month, an outage for two months, the market's not really going to make those kind of changes. Now, if it thinks it's going to be out of commission for longer, then you could see those kinds of shifts occur. All right. And Todd, you brought up the intermodal competitive index in the webinar. I would like you to help people understand what does that index measure and where can they, where can they find it? Yeah, the intermodal competitive index measures the competitiveness of intermodal relative to the domestic truckload market. And so it, it gives you a sense of where are intermodal conditions relative to truck. Is it positive, at which point uh, intermodal would have an advantage relative to truck? And what is the magnitude of that, uh, of that advantage? You know, if it's double digits, then that, that suggests that you're going to see people change their behavior and people move volumes on a, a permanent basis from one mode to the other. If it's negative, if it's very, if it's very negative as it has been in the recent past, you know that suggests that intermodals at a very particular, uh, very particular disadvantage relative to truck, and folks are going to take volumes and move volumes over from intermodal uh, to the railroad to the, to the truckload market, and it so it gives you a sense of how competitive intermodal is and what where is that competitive dynamic so that you can make uh, changes make decisions about your supply chain. And you can find that uh, as part of our intermodal dashboard product. Uh, it's there, it's updated every month and it gives you a sense of a snapshot. What is the competitive nature of it? Where, where's the competitive balance lie? Now you can also get a sense of where things stand by the recovery indexes for both rail and truck on FTR's coronavirus website page uh, that will have uh, the, the recovery index metrics that we talked about in the webinar itself to get a sense of how far back to, uh, to full are we? How close to, uh, how close to, to, to a full recovery pre-pandemic volume level are we? And so you can have a sense of where, where the modes are. Is one mode performing better than the other? And as we saw in the, uh, in the webinar, truck is recovering a lot quicker than, than rail car load is. And so you can get a sense of that in real time uh, being updated on our website if you go to FTR's coronavirus uh, webpage at all. 
All right, Todd, thank you so much. Uh, I want to say thank you to Avery and Eric for joining us. Uh, if you want to find out any more information, go to ftrintel.com and we'd be happy to help you out. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. And for our listeners who didn't see the key issues in transportation webinar, that replay is available now along with the full presentation at www.ftrintel.com forward slash key issues. If you're new to the State of Freight podcast, be sure to subscribe and follow along as we publish updates each week with the rail market update and the trucking market update. You can find all information about the State of Freight podcast online at www.ftrintel.com forward slash podcast. In addition to this content, FTR is presenting a virtual speaking series called FTR Engage starting this August. FTR Engage will provide informative keynote presentations from top leaders within the freight transportation industry, and each session will include a State of Freight intelligence review from FTR experts. Details about each session are available now, and you can register online at www.ftrintel.com forward slash engage. Thank you all for attending and have a great day.